Episode 9 of Brad the Nomad, Wenceslas Square. This is Brad the Nomad, the podcast of an American's eclectic look at the history, culture, and wonders of Europe. And now, Brad the Nomad. Hello. Welcome back to Brad the Nomad. On this episode, I'll be taking you on a walk through the history and architecture of one of my favorite places in Prague, Wenceslas Square. All great cities have their great square, Times, Trafalgar, Tiananmen, Market. Prague is no exception. Starting life as a horse market, Wenceslas Square has become a major draw for tourists and residents alike. In a historic sense, this square's fluid history also shows that it is a bellwether of who controls the city. If you want to hold Prague, you have to hold Wenceslas Square. It's dynamic, it's captivating, and it's uniquely Prague. So let's take to the streets and stroll through Wenceslas Square. extension of Prague ordered by Charles IV. It is 750 meters long and 45,000 meters squared in size. It's less a square than a boulevard, resembling a large rectangle. It gently slopes up a hill in a northwest to southeast direction, anchored by the imposing neoclassical National Museum. It is served by all three lines of the Prague metro, and two of the three transfer stations, Mustek and Museum, are found on the square. If you'd like to know more about the Prague Metro, you should check out episode 4. The system, being mostly centered on the square, along with the presence of the headquarters of leading Czech companies, explains why many locals can be found walking through the area. On the other hand, locals do try to avoid the area whenever possible due to the scourge of gentrification. Where once marched nationalists, Nazis, communists, and patriots, now tourists stream in and out of McDonald's, KFC, Starbucks, and the trendy department stores lining both sides of the square. However, the city fathers have decided to try to reclaim the area from this problem and have been gradually adding landscaping and beautification. However, the funding is limited, and it's an open question if the project will ever be completed. Despite the gentrification and tourists, residents still gather here for demonstrations and celebrations. Personally, I'm usually walking around the square at least once a day. With the transit system anchored on it, my workplace just down a side street, and meeting a private student at the KFC, I really can't help it. I'm actually quite fond of the square due to its architecture and atmosphere. On good weather days, I like to linger on one of the many benches and read, sip a drink, or just people watch, like I used to in New York. Of course, you're not here to listen to my humdum everyday life. Uh, let's dig into the square's past and see why it has such a strong pull for Proggers. Our story actually starts all the way back in 1348. The Black Death has just ravaged Europe and swept through Prague itself on its way towards modern Scandinavia and Russia. As the continent recovered, Prague received one of its most influential and beloved leaders, Charles IV. 
He'll get his due on the podcast someday, but what you need to know for this episode is that he founded the new town in 1348. Prague was growing fast in the 14th century and needed to expand beyond the shadow of Prague Castle. The new extension of the city called for several open spaces. The second largest of these was intended to be a horse market. This was the space that would eventually evolve into Wenceslas Square. Architecturally, the future square wasn't too much to consider. It was surrounded by a series of nondescript two-story dwellings and shacks, many being used to serve the nearby horse market. One of the old city gates, creatively dubbed the Horse Gate, brooded at the south end of the area. The first recorded large crowd gathered here during the Hussite Wars, celebrating Jan Ziska's victory in the Battle of Witkov Hill in 1420. There are also a few reports of rallies taking place here after the second defenestration of Prague in 1618, which kicked off the devastating Thirty Years' War and saw the city captured and sacked by the Habsburgs. By the 19th century, the fortunes of the former horse market were beginning to improve. Large, impressive apartment houses and hotels were built around the square, raising both its prestige and land value. This is not to say that the area fully shed its radical past. There were protests here during the year of revolution, 1848. Czechs rallied here for self-determination from the Habsburg crown. These protests were all put down mercilessly. It was during this tumultuous year that Proggers realized that horse market really wasn't cunning it as a name of pride. Czech author and journalist Karol Borozowski recommended naming it after the patron saint of the Czech lands, St. Wenceslas. The name was embraced, and Wenceslas Square was born. The square remained a rallying point for Czech nationalism, especially during the Czech national revival of the 19th century. In 1885, the horse gate was torn down to make way for the square's most iconic building, the National Museum. Completed in five years, the massive building became a point of pride for Czech nationalism. The square had to wait a little longer for the presence of its namesake, though. But in 1912, a large equestrian statue of St. Wenceslas was erected. During the 20th century, Wenceslas Square changed hands several times, much like Prague itself. When the independent nation of Czechoslovakia was proclaimed in the aftermath of World War I, the square was mobbed by Prague Czechoslovaks. After the post-Munich remains of Czechoslovakia were absorbed by Nazi Germany in 1939, German troops marched triumphantly through the square. The first occupation headquarters was established on the square, and weekly patrols of both Wehrmacht and SS reminded the Czechs who controlled the city now. During the three-day Prague uprising of May 1945, the square was the scene of numerous scuffles between German defenders and Czech resistors, and several buildings were gutted by fire. The Soviets held a celebratory parade in the square later that month after they liberated the city to the relief of Praggers. It was a very different story when they returned in 1968. In that year, during the ruthless crushing of Alexander Dubček's socialism with a human face, Soviet forces led a Warsaw Pact Allied Army to besiege the square, damaging several buildings, including the National Museum. The next year, Jan Pollock immolated himself in protests of the Soviet occupation in front of the museum. In 1989, Wenceslas Square became the focal point of the Velvet Revolution. 
For 11 days, hundreds of thousands of Czechs from across the country converged on the square, demanding an end to the communist dictatorship. It would be from a balcony overlooking the square on December 10, 1989, that the famed dissident playwright Václav Havel, accompanied by Alexander Dubček, announced the formation of the first non-communist government since 1948. Today, at the heart of the Free Czech Republic, Wenceslas Square maintains its historic role as the meeting place of the Czech people and the ultimate place of expression for mourning and celebrating alike. Now that we know how Wenceslas Square came to be, let's take a brief walk through this iconic square. Assume we're at the opposite end from the National Museum and we'll be heading towards that building. Immediately to the right, you'll see a simple, functionless white building with Bata on top in giant red letters. This is the Bata building. You would be forgiven for thinking that this is a relatively new structure. It was actually built in the late 1920s. The Moravian shoe company Bata erected this handsome building with reinforced concrete, and in its day, it was one of the most fashionable department stores in Europe. One interesting bit of trivia. In the aftermath of Reinhard Heydrich's assassination during World War II, German officials put belongings abandoned by the assassins on display in a storefront window, with promises of a large reward for information leading to their arrest. The assassins were ultimately tracked down, and after a protracted firefight, took their own lives to avoid Nazi capture. Directly at a diagonal from Bata is the Karuna, or Crown Building. This building is not named for royalty or the Czech currency, but the graceful, almost Art Deco crown on top. The building serves as an anchor for the northern side of the square, and is one of the best buildings in the area. The building, built in 1912, once boasted an automated buffet where customers could get a meal for only one crown, or a fraction of a modern U.S. dollar. It was built on the site of the former Café Edison, where the famed inventor dined during his visit to Prague. Let's head up the square. That gorgeous building to the left is the Ambassador Hotel, one of Prague's best examples of Art Nouveau. The glamorous hotel, which was opened in 1920, modestly says that its own history is quite boring. However, there is one bit of trivia that they probably prefer you don't know. It was here in 1939 that the Nazis established their first headquarters for the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. Next door is the Zvata Husa, or Golden Goose. It's named for its unfortunate owner, a woman who is extraordinarily wealthy and extraordinarily ugly. She never married, and it was known around town as the Golden Goose. It was merged with the ambassador in 1960s. And today, the Fused Hotel is one of the most luxurious in the city. One of the great things about Prague is that it rewards urban exploration. Here's a great example. We have here a drab, modernist building with a covered entrance. But suppose you were to turn off Wenceslas Square and go through it. And suppose you were to keep going through this atrium-like hall. What would you find? Congratulations! You just stumbled upon the Franciscan Garden. Tucked away amid a mix of modern and older buildings in the shadow of the Church of Virgin Mary of the Snows, the garden is a favorite place for residents and tourists to escape the hectic energy of the new town. It seems like you're in a different world altogether. Although one of the busiest streets in the city is a two-minute walk away, it's completely silent. But let's head back out onto the square and keep moving south. 
You never know what historic secrets these buildings keep. For example, number 19 is a grand building in its own right architecturally, but its greatest claim to fame is who worked here. An unassuming office clerk began his career here, working for an insurance company. His name was Franz Kafka. Further down the square on the right is a large unassuming building with Marks and Spencer on top. Today, it's an apartment building, but that small balcony holds a very special place in the heart of Czechs. It was from that balcony in 1989 that Vaclav Havel and Alexander Dubček addressed the 500,000 people who had packed Wenceslas Square that a new government, free of communist domination, had been formed. It was the culmination of the Velvet Revolution, and both men would be swept into positions of leadership shortly thereafter. Right across from the building where Havel and Dubček made history is the Grand Hotel Europa, another great hotel. This majestic Art Nouveau building was built in 1904, and in its day boasted high ceilings and sky-high fees. Today it hosts a French cafe and an observation point for the tourist set. As we cross Jinjiska, and watch out for the multiple trams making their way through the square here, look up to the right to see the impressive Veal House. Built in 1896 for the Czech businessman A. Veal, the most impressive feature of the small building is its decor. There are large, vibrantly colored frescoes running along the entire building, depicting the life of a merchant in Rudolf II's reign. The building and its unique decoration were damaged in World War II, but they have since been restored. It's from this point that the square looks more like a classical European boulevard, with green areas and benches marching from Yendriska all the way up to the National Museum. Overall, the buildings become far less interesting from an architectural standpoint as we're approaching the area that was partially burned out during the end of the war, so many buildings were rebuilt in a drabber style. But still, if you know where to look, surprises can be had. Here's another bland, nondescript building. Let's say you were to go in there, you would find a modern shopping mall and this rather unique sculpture, Horse by David Shearney. This whimsical statue is based on the imposing work of St. Wenceslaus at the end of the square. It depicts St. Wenceslaus riding a dead, upside-down horse. This is, in fact, one of Czerny's more rational statues. Expect an episode on this eccentric artist and his work at some point in the future. Heading closer to the National Museum, you can see what I mean about these more modern buildings lacking the flair of Art Nouveau. This is one of the closest examples Prague has to Stalinism, the bland, oppressive style that swept most of communist-occupied Europe in the aftermath of World War II. Prague emerged from the war largely intact, and as a result, Soviet architects had less of a chance to impose Uncle Joe's uh, architectural vision on the city. Speaking of communism, look down at the traffic island we're passing. There's a small plaque embedded in the sidewalk, dedicated to two notable martyrs of Czech independence, Jan Pollock and Jan Zazik. I'll talk more about them later. We finally reach the crown jewels of Wenceslas Square, the National Museum, and the saint himself. This massive equestrian statue of the patron saint was built in 1912, and shows St. Wenceslas looking down the square that bears his name. The bronze saint is accompanied by four smaller patron saints of the Czech lands. The statue and its plaza have always been a rallying place for people in the square, whether it be mourning Havel's death in 2011 or celebrating the independence of Czechoslovakia in 1918. 
the back end has also become a popular informal meeting space for locals. Proggers know exactly what you're talking about when you say, I'll meet you at the horse's ass. Taking the final steps to the Nash Museum brings us across the last vestiges of a Soviet attempt to mold Wenceslas Square. The busy road right in front of the National Museum is all that was built of a planned ring road. If it had been completed, it would have plowed through the historic heart of the city, forever ruining its character. Thankfully, that plan never got very far, and this brief burst of traffic is all that was realized. Still, its existence violates the founding charter of the National Museum, which maintains that the collection must be in a peaceful and undisturbed place. And now, the National Museum itself. Completed in 1891, this majestic neoclassical pile boasts one of the most exhaustive mineral collections in Europe, an imposing entryway known as the Pantheon. It hasn't been the luckiest building. At the end of World War II, it was hit by German bombs, and drilling for the metro rattled the old building's foundations. But the most humiliating damage can still be seen on the walls of the building. You may notice that some areas are patched in lighter colors. During the 1968 invasion, the building was racked by machine gun fire. The invaders claimed they thought the building was a Czechoslovakian parliament. The Czechs insisted that it was an international act of punishment. Regardless, the communists demanded that the repairmen cover over the damage and make it look like it never happened. One big happy socialist family, after all. According to legend, the crews purposely chose an off-color to preserve the evidence of vandalism, and it's still obvious, even today. As I record this episode in late January 2015, the museum is undergoing a massive renovation and is currently closed to the public. When it's reopened, I plan to visit, and hopefully I can take you along. I direct your attention to the left. That glass and steel building was the home of the Czechoslovakian parliament during the communist era. So I can totally see why the Soviet army got these two buildings mixed up, can't you? Uh, from 1948 to 1989, the building was host to a rubber stamp parliament that basically did little more than approve the wishes of the party. The glass and steel structure was added in the 1960s as part of a modernization of an older, smaller, pre-war building that served as the produce exchange. After the end of communism, Radio Free Europe took over in 1995 and had its headquarters here until 2009. They've since moved to another part of the city. Today, the former parliament is an extension of the National Museum. Finally, in the shadow of this former symbol of communist oppression is perhaps the most sobering part of Wenceslas Square. At your feet, you will see an undulating cross. It is roughly at this spot on January 16th 1969, that Charles University student Jan Pollock immolated himself in protest of the Warsaw Pact invasion and the end of the Prague Spring. A doctor attending to the dying young man said Pollock claimed he did it not to protest the invasion itself, but the demoralization of the Czech people in its aftermath. His funeral became a massive protest against the regime, and two others followed in his footsteps, Jan Zalek in February and Evgen Polshek in April. This undulating cross marks the place where Pollock and Zalek fell. Polsik later had a small plaque added with his name. To end this episode on a more upbeat note, turn and look back down the way we came and take in the entirety of the square. Today where these martyrs of Czech independence fell, one can now see the beating heart of a free and independent Czech nation, 
at once in the present, but mindful of its past, and forever changing, surprising, and exciting those who visit the enchanting mother of cities. And this ends my look at Wenceslas Square. Join me for the next episode of Brad the Nomad, where I'll examine another piece of European history and culture. Until next time, happy travels. Thank you.